Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. Alva's on holiday, and on this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Labour Party and tax rises, and you ask us, what is going on with the Alex Salmond inquiry? So we're coming up to the budget next week, and we've had a number of questions from our listeners about the row over tax raises. So it looks at the moment like Rishi Sunak is going to announce some rises to certain taxes, and that Keir Starmer is opposing all of those tax rises, which has caused some consternation, particularly on the Labour left. So, Stephen, what what have both of those figures actually said? Right. So, right, Rishi Sunak himself has not actually said anything, mm. but he, it has been made known through allies' aides and, and the usual kind of bits of sinning that Rishi Sunak plans to, to announce or nod to the idea that, well, this is what's not clear. Is he going to say corporation tax will at some point go up and have the vote now so that he doesn't have to have the vote nearer an election? Is he actually going to announce that the corporation tax is going up tomorrow? Imagining today is the budget. One of the things he thinks is that the election of Biden means that the United States will not cut its corporation tax any further, mm. which means that the United Kingdom has a quite a lot of latitude to continue to have the lowest corporation tax in the G7 while increasing it quite a bit. The Labour Party's position continues to be that it's the wrong time to have tax rises because the economy is still in crisis conditions and therefore it will vote against it and indeed vote against the budget as a whole. Now, obviously, the Labour Party is going to vote against the budget whatever happens, right? Yeah. So in a way, it's a little bit like me saying due to the economic crisis, I plan to like have a cup of tea when this podcast is finished. It's true, but it's not really that linked to the economic crisis. <laughs> but now, I have to be honest, I am slightly perplexed as to, well, I guess it actually does show the success of like a certain type of austerity frame, successfully prosecuted by the, the right, parroted in the media, and still, even though the economic consensus has moved, treated as consensus by large chunks of the broadcasters, right? Due to the particular debate about how the government did austerity from 20, 2015 to 2016, 17, 18, whenever. I mean, obviously, in terms of the cuts, loads of them are still going on. But when the government's project was austerity, and they explicitly argued for it, this last round of austerity under the governments of Cameron and May was explicitly about spending cuts. But Mm. tax rises in a downturn are also a form of austerity. The 1981 budget's austerity was almost all tax rises. So not least because of the way corporation tax works here, right, we are also talking about, and well, you know, I'm not I'm not saying, you know, it's necessarily the most sympathetic group, 
But like a large chunk of people who are self-employed were, in, yeah, basically encouraged to incorporate. They've received no economic support. This idea that like they can necessarily absorb this tax rise during the economic crisis is, I'm sorry, I don't think it is proven. And I think that a lot of our questions in the nicest, gentlest way are confusing a question of positioning with a question about economic policy. Parking for a moment the political question, I don't think it is a good idea for Rishi Sunak to do the thing he is apparently planning to do at this point. It's just a bad idea. It's not an appropriate time to be going, oh yeah, let's think about the fiscal position. Let's try and start thinking about clawing things back. And the only reason why he's doing this is because it's more politically convenient, he believes, for the Conservative Party to do these tax rises now rather than have to do them in 2023, 2024, whenever it is that the economy may or may not have recovered from the budget. But I think, frankly, that Labour's position, which is to go, no, you need to up continue the UC uplift. No, you can't raise council taxes. You can't raise corporation taxes. Partly because I think, seeing as everyone basically agrees and it's in terms of the you know, the strategic opportunity the Labour Party has, which is in the economic consensus has moved towards it, I think it would would be insane to go, oh, actually, we're aligned with the economic consequence and all of these other taxes, but we've decided we're going to be a bit more radical on this one. And so we're going to have this argument where it's like, well, on the one hand, we're more, we're, you know, there are, yeah, they're this, we're that, other than on this issue where we kind of agree with them. I do just think people are conflating oh, if you're left-wing, it's because you put the taxes up no matter what, which, I mean, like I said, is, is an astonishing victory for a certain type of right-wing talking point than a large chunk of people. You're not just on the Labour left. I mean, a large chunk of people across the Labour Party do really seem to buy into this as an analysis of, of left-wing economics. Yeah, I think you're right, because the defence for tax rises in the budget that's coming up now would be the same defence for cutting public services in the budget that's coming up now, or at least not raising spending for them, because they are two sides of the same coin. So I do think that that reality has been lost in the debate. But I'm going to defend some of our listeners here and some of the questions that they've sent in, because I do think that Labour is trying to play to that confusion in a way. So they're, they're often saying things like, it's not the time to raise tax rises, that's fine. But they they then say on families and businesses, and it almost sounds like they are trying to sound like they are the new party of business. And we know that, you know, that's actively what what they want to try and be, particularly against this conservative government, but also on the back of successive conservative governments that have pissed off parts of the business community, particularly with Brexit, and also the way that they've treated the help for some businesses during the crisis. So you can kind of see, see the political strategy there. But I also think that that political strategy does blur those things that you just laid out very clearly to the ordinary voter who, you know, who may think, well, wh- why why shouldn't, you know, wealthy businesses have to pay a bit more tax when I don't have as much money in my pocket for absolutely no fault of my own this year. I think that it's it's up to the Labour Party to try and communicate why they're taking a particular stance on that aspect of the budget without trying to play into some of those stereotypes that are propagated by the media and are sort of received wisdom in Westminster, even though they don't necessarily make a whole deal of sense. So I think the Labour Party has to be careful with the way that it communicates what it's new or what it wants to be, its new tone on business 
to be. Also, I do think it's in, it's an interesting thing to pick up on for, for the ordinary voter because of that general perception that the Labour Party is sort of more free and easy with raising taxes than the Conservative Party because there's been a lot of polling recently and focus groups done on public attitudes to tax and they have been changing. So you do have a significant increase in the number of people who voted Conservative in the last election expressing their support for increasing corporation tax, increasing capital gains tax, reforming council tax, even a mansion tax has had quite a lot of traction in some of the sort of public attitude surveys that that I've seen. So I do think that's an interesting shift and that it must be part of the reason why, okay, we're not in anywhere near sort of a general election, but it must be part of the reason why Rishi Sunak as Chancellor and as the type of Chancellor that he is, feels you know, somewhat comfortable about floating these ideas. Because while there will be your opponents on the Conservative backbenches to this, there is more sympathy in the Tory grassroots now. So that kind of boldness in terms of these policies does mean a lot for how Labour does opposition sort of in this new climate. I would basically agree with all of that. I think um, the confusion I complained about in terms of some of the responses to this is also present in how Labour presents this policy then I don't think that they are 100% clear on what is fiscal strategy and what is political positioning. Mm. I mean, I think they understand those two things are different, but I'm not convinced in terms of when they actually present them, whether or not they could definitively say, yeah, which one of these is is, is dog and which one of these is tail. Mm. The reason why Rishi Sunak feels able to go move into this position of having the next round of austerity be primarily about tax rises rather than being about spending cards, I think is is linked to the fact people are more supportive of tax rises. But I guess I think that's the other way around. Mm -hmm. I think people are becoming more supportive of tax rises because, well, as I'd say, if you go outside, people aren't able to do this. But but people can see, you know, the rise of rough sleeping, the pressures on their local authorities. There's a bunch of kind of tangible consequences of the cuts, including some of which are actually tangible consequences of cuts that were signed, sealed and delivered a long time ago. It's just taken a while for them to work through in terms of their impact on the, the social fabric. And that means that voters look at the state as it exists in 2021 and they don't go, oh yeah, we should definitely have, yeah, let's have more spending cuts. They go, okay, yeah, we, we clearly need to spend more on the public, public realm. And that bleeds through to Conservative MPs, particularly ones in marginal seats who are very worried about it all. The interesting challenge for both political parties is broadly, right, as we've said many times, and, you know, you've covered this brilliantly on the on the website and in the mag, right? The political project that was actually mainly delivered by Philip Hammond in that 2017 to 19 period was going to throw money at the bits of the public realm than people who are not really dependent on the state really notice, rough sleeping, and then a bit on things like schools and police, where, again, actually with police, because crime is at record lows throughout the Western world, People mostly do not actually come directly in contact with the police. They just notice police presence or its absence. And then I'm going to have targeted tax relief at people in the kind of like upper two quintiles of the income distribution. So the increase in higher rate. And this is going to allow me to hold together my electoral coalition while reaching across into the seats that we almost took in 2017. And that essentially is the 2019 election result. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't it. Obviously, the decisions... Boris Johnson made, Don Cummings made, the Git Brexit and Stoken were important, but but the ground was laid for that with the fiscal events of, of, of Philip Hammond. But essentially the political project has been you protect what you might describe as the 
the 2016 era state. And then you have to deliver a bit more on policing, a bit more on schools and a bit more on the NHS. The difference the pandemic has made as far as Rishi Sunak thinks, according to people familiar with his thinking, is that you're going to have to spend more now on schools because of the massive social costs of lockdown. You're going to have to spend more on a variety of other kind of post-lockdown measures. And while the economy is in a down cycle, even if the Chancellor succeeds in his internal fight over the UC uplift, which I mean, I think even if he stands up believing he's won that fight, he hasn't won that fight, right? If he stands up next week and goes, the UC uplift is going. It's just like, yeah, no, it's not me. Cool story, bro. But yeah, (laughs) but even if he were to win that fight and he was to win it permanently, there'd still be a significant increase in the size of welfare spending because more people are going to be unemployed in the short run. Plus the fact that, of course, we have a much larger debt pile. I'm very aware if you're one of our our MMT listeners, I have not remotely given any house room to your (laughs) view of the economy, for which I apologise. It's just British Sinek doesn't believe it. Annalise Dodds doesn't believe it. So while it's interesting, it's, it's not really germane to this conversation about political positioning and tactics. If you're concerned about debt, future inflationary pressures, interest rates, although, you know, to to what extent you think low interest rates are permanent or not is is a whole other debate, Mm. then you suddenly end up in a situation where if you're Rishi Sunak, you're going, oh, well, the only lever available to me are some form of tax rises, which is great for the Labour Party in some ways, other than the fact, and this is to me is the position I think that they are vulnerable on, is is their position in 2020, well, their position in 2024 isn't these tax rises are going to stay. Yeah. Right, really. What is their position if conservative commitment is these tax rises will go? Then at some point in 2026, corporation tax will go down, some tax relief for people in the higher rate or above, right? all of that kind of stuff. Then suddenly I think Labour is in quite a difficult political position. And I think the fact that not just the BBC and the other broadcasters still kind of repeat this, it's got to be paid for, but a large chunk of people on the left have this kind of, oh, it's got to be paid for, the left is when the tax rate is high, does show how much the inability to land a different economic argument is going to continue to be a problem for the Labour Party. Definitely, because, and not least because the Labour Party is just generally historically more vulnerable on these issues in terms of the way that voters perceive their economic competence. So they, they've got to climb a higher mountain than the Conservatives do just to just to stand still, basically, on these issues. So if they are seen to be contradicting themselves or dropping their, mani- not manifesto pledges, but Keir Starmer's leadership pledges on tax, and if they do face a Conservative Party that, that is going to try and lower some taxes just ahead of a general election, then they are going to be in bigger trouble than if it was the other way around. You know, I I remember, you know, Ed Miliband always tried to use the tax cut for millionaires line following George Osborne's cut to the higher rate of tax. And, you know, it's a good line, but it just just never seemed to. Obviously, it did cut through because it was repeated so many times and people could remember it. But it it still didn't do the job for Labour on shifting voters perceptions of of their handling of the economy. A lot has changed since then, obviously. And coronavirus has upended some of the norms and some of people's prejudices about the way that the economy has ru- is run. But I don't know whether it will be enough to change it, especially not if, as we've discussed on the podcast before, Kirstama takes some of the similar kind of lines and strategies that Ed Miliband did back in 2015. So um, I agree with you. I do think that, that they're in a vulnerable position and this upcoming budget has, you know, is sort of the first exposure of that. Mm-hmm. 
If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And we've had lots of questions on this subject as well. So I'm going to choose the simplest one, which is what is going on with the Alex Salmond inquiry? Stephen, sorry that it falls on you to try and outline what exactly is happening at the moment. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So without hesitation, deviation or repetition, the Alex <laughs> Salmond inquiry is the inquiry into the Scottish government's handling of allegations of sexual harassment against Alex Salmond of which he was found not guilty on 12 counts and not proven, which is a verdict that exists within the Scottish legal system, but not within that of of England and Wales, on a further count of sexual assault with an intent to rape. And this essentially inquiry is to what did the Scottish government know when? Well, so the interesting thing is at the start of this inquiry, the thing that lots of unionist politicians and opponents of the SNP, the kind of like the thing they thought they were going to get out of this was and it was going to turn out in the Scottish government, including Nicola Sturgeon, had clearly known for a long time, that they'd known before it come come forward, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they basically ended up being bounced into it by the wave of allegations of sexual harassment that kind of spread across, you know, the world politics and society in the wake of the Me Too allegations against Harvey Weinstein. What has instead happened is this has become the focal point for a row within the SNP. Alex Salmond, who obviously was the predecessor and former ally as First Minister, is now alleging a plot between various people at the top of the SNP and the Scottish Government to destroy his reputation, even to the extent of, of, of being willing to see him in prison for these allegations. Various allies of Salmond within the party have, you know, have, have aerated these allegations, which Nicola Sturgeon, of course, denies. And there is currently an ongoing back and forth about whether or not he can. So he says he can't testify for the inquiry unless his submission, his written submission to the inquiry is published in full and he's able to refer to it in his evidence gathering. An added subplot at this point is that actually, as it happens, the full written submission is in its unredacted form on the Spectator website. But at time of recording, he has pulled out of his first session because it had, because, all right, so the Crown Office, which is, people in reporting keep saying it's like the Attorney General, which it, it is and it isn't, in that it's like the Attorney General of England and Wales, except the Attorney General in England and Wales has basically always been in modern times someone explicitly connected with the governing party of the day. Now, okay, a lot of the time on the New Labour, they were basically like, you know, a well-respected lawyer who they put in via the peerage. Obviously, Geoffrey Cox is a well-respected lawyer who who became Attorney General under Theresa May, kept under Boris Johnson, and Suella Braverman has a law degree. Whereas the Lord Advocate, James Wolfe, is not someone who's been publicly aligned with the SNP. He was appointed in 2016. So, right, so this is where I'm I'm 
seamlessly going to move from trying to summarise it to pure opinion, which is so where I think a lot of the kind of, oh, you know, this shows that Scotland, uh, you know, then the devolved institutions of Scotland are no longer properly democratic, you know, from opponents of the SNP and some of the uh, repeating of the allegations of conspiracy by people within the SNP, where they fall down is for them to be true. You have to believe that Wolf, a highly respected lawyer who was appointed in 2016 without any controversy, right, an eminently qualified person, has chosen to say you can't actually you can't publish this evidence unredacted on the Scottish Parliament website because he is an agent of the part of the SNP that wants to do Alex Salmon down. I'm sorry, I just don't think that's likely. That does to me seem to be absurd. But of course I could be wrong. But that is where we essentially are at the moment with allegations of cover up, questions about whether or not Salmon will testify. And I think crucially of course a no clear end to the internal battle within the SNP. And intriguingly, uh, yes, it's only one poll. We should never make too many claims of one poll unless it's unless it's of something where people refuse to poll regularly enough for this to be tenable. So I'm just going to wildly break my own rule. Then Ipsos Mori's latest poll suggests that this is affecting perception, perceptions of the Scottish government because they are seen as divided. Now, not so affected than they aren't on course to win a majority, but it does, I think, show that these divides will be with us for some time. Yeah, that, that that poll was interesting. It caught my eye as well. And and in all of the coverage of, of this inquiry and Alex Salmon's non or postponed appearance in the past few days, it has the question has been, is it affecting people's perceptions of the party to an extent that it could manifest in the election results? Because obviously we have the Holyrood elections in 10 weeks' time. And, you know, the answer has always kind of been not really, but it looks like from that Ipsos Mori poll that is it, that it is starting to cut through. And of course, if Alex Hammond goes before the inquiry tomorrow, and I think Nicola Sturgeon is due up next week as well, then that's going to make the top of the news and 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 trickle into people's consciousness even more. And it will be interesting to see how how that affects not only um, the polling ahead of the election, but also polling on Scottish independence sentiment as well. So that's that's been interesting to watch. And Nicola Sturgeon used her. Corona, one of her coronavirus press conferences yesterday, which is which are usually quite straight down the line. You know, she doesn't do much of Boris Johnson's kind of flowery answers. Um, she usually is is quite straightforward, but she used some of that to deny what Alex Salmond is is accusing her of, and sort of to suggest that he's got sort of these delusions of of a conspiracy. So it shows that it is it is rattling them as well. It is getting to them, and that it is it's increasingly in the public consciousness as well. Having said that, I don't know. I mean, you wrote a really interesting morning call on this earlier in the week. I don't know how useful that's going to be just from a sheer cynical political perspective to the SNP's opponents ahead of the election, because as you pointed out, Stephen, most of the political parties, you know, can't necessarily claim that they have their own houses in order in, in terms of the way that they've dealt with sexual harassment allegations and also bullying allegations as well. We've seen so many examples of realpolitik getting in the way of how they process those. And so it's one of those issues where you are kind of playing with fire if you're if you're using that against your opponents. And you know, I've been told this by by people in political parties before, where there is a reluctance to point out a certain party's vulnerabilities on these issues because you know that if it was turned on you, you would also have quite a disappointing story to tell. 
yeah, obviously, the average person does not follow politics that closely. And I think um, one morning call reader put it really well. And they said, the thing that's fascinating about this story is they were like, it's a, it's a Holyrood bubble story, primarily being read by the Westminster bubble. But I think the thing that, that people do pick up on is the, the kind of obvious, and I'm just going to say it, distasteful glee that, that some opponents of the have taken right from the beginning of this story. Yeah, where you have people kind of going, oh, when Alex Salmond uh, is, 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 is convicted, that'll be the end for the SNP. And it's just like, do you know what? And obviously one, he wasn't. But I don't think that people should enjoy and savour the prospect of someone being convicted of 13 counts of sexual assault, because that is a sign that something terrible has happened to multiple people, right? And then you have kind of the sort of like the kind of paroxysm of joy, like, oh, it's going to turn out from Nicola and you, oh, it's going to turn out then. And I think voters can pick up on that. Mm, mm. I think they know, they absorb than the other parties aren't being honest brokers in this. And that's before you get into, as I said in the email, right? Like, so let's say I'm someone who was planning to vote for the SNP and I'm disgusted about their handling of this and or I'm worried about collusion between parts of the state and the ruling party. What, am I going to vote for the Conservatives and their noticeable a- attraction to maintaining checks and balances down south? Am I going to vote for the Labour Party, which under successive leaders has handled allegations of sexual harassment so slowly that more MPs have voluntarily left the Labour Party? Under both Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn, there are more MPs who have been accused of sexual And yes, they deny them, but they there are more people who have been accused who have left the Labour Party voluntarily than there are people who have been accused who have seen their process through to the end, one way or the other. Obviously, neither of those parties are credible, honest brokers on this issue. I think the the one sort of caveat to that is because the vaccine rollout is going well, it may be that it allows the Scottish Conservatives to go, well, look, we're more competent. But I think one of the reasons why this is not cutting through in the way the opponents of the SNP fantasised is people can pick up on the fact that they've been fantasising about it. And it's just like a classic thing of if you're not credible on an issue and you aren't sincere on an issue, People can tell. People can tell if you're you don't really believe in something. They can, they can tell if your sort of main interest in this row is kind of yeah yeah this kind of salivating over the prospect of it. And I think all of that adds to the reason why it isn't having the political effect than some people hope. But I think the the interesting legacy is one of the things that's happened is yeah of course the final party conference I, I went to because it was the last one before lockdown. Last SNP conference I went to was in Aberdeen, and it was wholly unlike any other SNP conference. In an, it felt a lot like, well, it felt like a Labour Party conference in a fairly unified leader year for the Labour Party. Yeah, 30% of the party clearly were quite unhappy, 60% of it, you know, fairly squarely behind the leader. But it felt a lot more like a normal political party in ways than both good and bad the SNP has never really felt before. And I think it's really interesting that since the SNP started to publicly row over this issue, they've started to publicly row over a whole swathe of other issues as well, some of which... Mm quite clearly line up on salmon sturgeon lines but some of which don't and i suspect them the most important long-term legacy of this will be the smp remaining more of a normal party as it were you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anush shakelian and my colleague stephen bush you can find me on twitter at anush underscore c you can find me on twitter at, at stephen kb We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe.